Coming up next, the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 20-23. Is Gamla the boyhood town where Yeshua grew up? Is Gamla the Matthew 5.14 reference to a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden? We will continue with questions like this and others about Gamla in the Galilee. In the north of the modern state of Israel, tucked into a canyon on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, there is a mountain that is called Gamala. Is this Gamala ancient Nazareth? We'll be talking about that with Joe Bartling, a forensic scientist and certified fraud examiner who's going to help us to look at the evidence to determine if Gamala in the northern Galilee is in fact the boyhood town of Yeshua where he grew up and where he did so much of his ministry. Gamla was destroyed by three Roman legions and it was lost to antiquity until it was rediscovered in 1968 by archaeologist Shemaria Gutman after Israel captured the Golan Heights following the Six-Day War. Joe visited Israel on five trips. He's been collecting and studying historical, geographical, and archaeological evidence about Gamala, this really amazing place uh, captured and preserved from history, and uh, many historical references recorded for us in the works of the Jewish historian Josephus. Joe, thank you for joining us today on Real Israel Talk Radio. Thank you, Alvi, for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, Joe, what does this forensic technologist thing mean? Forensic technology is the area that I'm an expert in, and that is taking documents and researching artifacts, facts, documents, maps, scatter diagrams, relationships. At the end of the day, it's words. You want to take words and analyze their context, their use, their uh, context to each other, the relationships to each other. So when you say a word like Netzar or Nazareth or something like that, that spins off of it all these different avenues of investigation, Mm -hmm. right? What is the word? What does it mean historically? What does it mean culturally? What does it mean uh, in in different kinds of, uh, of context? So we do that with everything. Right? We take each word, if it's gamla, we look at the word gamla, and we look at it in the Aramaic, we look at it in the Hebrew. So this forensic aspect of things takes a, the idea of these words, language, and culture, and kind of pulls it all together. You're very uh, experienced then in, uh, in the aspects of just investigation, uh, accounting kind, kinds of things also, yes. right? I've done a lot of white-collar crime investigations. Let's say someone writes an article and writes it anonymously and attacks someone and defames a person or, or libels a person. So I would be able to find out or at least look at those documents and look at that forensically to identify where did it come from, who might have written it, and and look at all of the facts of how a document is created. We do things like um, 
the word structure, how someone actually uses words in a sentence. Do you start word, start sentences with prepositions? Do you use uh, pronouns a lot? Mm -hmm. Do you what is the average length of your sentence or the average length of your paragraphs? And so we can do forensic analytics on these words to find out who might be and a you know the author of a document or you might be able to say this person or this person here could be a a, a suspect in a particular crime based yep. on that information exactly as a fraud examiner one of the things that we try to do is that we're uncovering evidence which are typically documents that present a case that normally isn't presented for example if someone is going to commit a fraud they typically will try to cover up that fraud, hmm. right, with other kinds of transactions that might look suspicious, or they might use different hmm. uh, a different computer, or they might use a different time frame, or they might try to set someone up to, to you know, cover their trail or have a alibi. So part of the fraud examination that we do is a total view of a societal um, petri dish, if you will, of evidence hmm. I do this a lot with the biblical structure. How did the people who are writing the Bible, how did they have a context of where they were writing it? If you were actually in Bethsaida, for example, how would you see Capernaum or Chorazin or the Jordan River? Or how would you see those things? And you see them completely differently when you add the context of culture, topography, geography, culture, temperature, what the land looks like, you know, all of that. Those are the kinds of things that go into the forensic science of, of analytics. So your so your training your training really helps you to essentially mine out the clues in yeah. the narratives to look and see what is really going on here. What where is this? What is this all about? That's what your exactly. experience is. Yeah. Well, the first thing is you have to understand that in forensics, there's a story underneath the story, right? Words mean more than what they say on their surface, and they can mean more than one thing, right? So a word is heard one way, but it might be spoken a different way. And so as a forensic person, you don't jump to a conclusion until you've thoroughly kind of investigated all of the context and the different kinds of things that that word or that context could mean. So I take that approach to this. I'm, I may not be right, but the idea is that we want to probe into these ideas. There might be something deeper, and maybe there's one or two levels deeper of these things that we've always uh, always read. Let's take one example. I, I've got one here for you. Uh, it's here in Matthew 24, 28. And this is verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there are vultures that will be gathered together. Nesherim. This the Nesherim, right. These Neshers, not necessarily eagles, but mm -hmm. these are the vultures. Mm -hmm. um, Gamla is one of the world's largest vulture capitals uh, as a refuge. Uh, there are th hundreds of birds and vultures, huge uh, meat-eating birds that, uh, that fly up and down those valleys and right over the top of Gamla. So he's looking at them and pointing to them in the sky, right? coming over this location. 
they're going to know what he's talking about. Exactly. And, you know, one other thing that we haven't discussed, but it's related to this, is that there's a megalith not three miles to the east of Gamla mm -hmm. called Gilgal Rephaim, mm -hmm. which is an ancient 5,000-year-old megalith structure, much like Stonehenge. So this megalithic 40,000 tons of, of rocks that are there, this ancient place, is thought to be the place of uh, the burial of King Og, who was the last of the Rephaim, mm -hmm. the last of these giants. So this is a culture that's been known in this area within eight miles, five miles from Gamla, three mm -hmm. miles from this location, mm -hmm. that this idea of excarnation or eagles or vultures gathering to find where dead bodies are, this is very contextual to this specific physical location and geographical location. So the listeners, the hearers of these words from Yeshua would have likely made that uh, made that connection, I would think. I would think so. I mean, I think he's pointing up to the sky saying, hey, these vultures are hanging around for some reason because they're looking for where the carcasses are. Wow. Something that we, uh, that we need to address on the idea of the word gamal, gamal, as a camel, because it also has some other additional meanings to it. Uh, gamal can also be referred to not only as a camel, uh, but can also be referred to as sufficiency or self-sufficiency or to wean as a child is weaned from his mother's breast milk. Maybe you might want to make a comment about that. This word is actually, as you mentioned, it means weaned, right? It's used in the Hebrew Bible 10 times, and it means when a child is not needing his mother's uh, nursing. And I, I can give you a reference here. Genesis 21.8 is one reference of many that, that addresses uh -huh. that. And uh, I will say that Josephus, the Jewish historian Josephus, identifies this town, this city set on a hill. Uh, Josephus calls it somewhat of an impenetrable mountain. It was very hard to to break that thing down. No, Nobody would have dared try to get at it. I mean, the Romans tried with three legions, and they were not completely successful at that. Uh, but that town had a bountiful supply of olive oil and wheat and many, many other crops. They were self-sufficient. They had wealth. They had a lot. They were not a poor group of people. That's for sure. Sure. And you know, when you think of a camel, right, a camel has sufficient water for many days, right, to be able to, I mean, that's part of the idea of a mm -hmm. camel, which is why it's called that. You know, Josephus, as you mentioned, he said that uh, in book four, chapter one, one of wars, Josephus says, it's in as much as it's like a camel and figure for whence it's named, although the people of the country do not pronounce it accurately. And so the idea of Gamla was this self-sufficient fortress. They were all blocked off, essentially, except for the ridge on the, on the one side. Mm -hmm. They had these bountiful supplies of things. So in Mark 10, 25, there's this concept that Yeshua uses comparing camel and the rich man, right? So we hear this in the Gospel of Matthew and in Mark. It says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of Yehovah. So it's interesting. We always kind of focus on the camp side of this, right? Mm -hmm. That the camel can't go through the eye of a needle, and therefore it's impossible. But the focus here, it really, I think, is probably on this rich man. And the idea is... And he says it in Mark 10, 23, the context of this story. Yeshua looked around and said to his disciples, how hard shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of Yehovah? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Yeshua answered them again and said, children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter the kingdom of Yehovah. So the idea of if you think that you're self-sufficient or you can trust in your riches, that is where you fall short, right, of being able to enter the kingdom of Yehovah. So can you imagine him in the shadow of this place hmm. called Gamla, which has this history of self-sufficiency, of sectarianism, of being the, quote, other side of the Jordan, right, as this place mm -hmm. that's far away, but it's self-sufficient, mm -hmm. that maybe self-sufficiency isn't what we all should uh, be striving for. Mm. Wow, that's really, really interesting, Joe. There's so much that we can talk about on this, I'm sure. Joe, if if everybody really knew this, um, don't you think there might be restaurants and hotels and churches up there at that uh, at that site? And maybe that's why it's a secret. You know, I've shared this with my Israeli archaeological friends, and they won't have anything of it, right? And part of it is just what is a cognitive bias, right? You, the, the, if We've never heard of this before, so this possibly can't possibly be true. And one of the things that, I, that really struck me when you brought this idea up to me 10 years ago and said, hey, you know, Everybody thinks I'm crazy. <laughs> you said that to me. You mm -hmm. said, you know, my teachers think I'm crazy. Anybody I share this with, I bring it up, and you think people are going to get excited about this. But, you know, one thing you said that was really important, and you said that, you know, maybe someday this will be known as something that is true, that I'm not motivated by someone just saying, oh, you know, it has to be that, or it has to be this, or it has to be that. I'm looking at the possibilities. Does this fit? Does the evidence support this? Mm. And if the evidence isn't sufficient for millions of people, that's fine. It makes us question another reason is why do we think the place of Nazareth is in its traditional site? Does it make you want to go back to Nazareth? And I've done that too, right? And mm -hmm. you've done it many times as well. Mm -hmm. And I go over to Nazareth, and you know, there's something about the place that, for whatever reason, it doesn't have the the vibe. The, doesn't have the, the vibe. vibe of something special, mm -hmm. right? And some place that is special is kept is kept in the hearts of someone. Sometimes it's kept mm. in a temple or in a rock that's placed, a memorial that's put there. And, and to me, there wasn't anything special in, in Nazareth. Gamla is something special. For whatever reason, Yehovah has kept this place pristine over 2,000 years that there's nothing there. And it wasn't discovered until 1968. Really, it's only, I think, um, I think it's something between 5 and 8% excavated. Yes. I mean, I mean, I mean that's, that's not 
yeah. that much. Even though the history tells us that 9,000 people died there. So that tells you a couple of things. One is that, as you've said, only a certain, you know, very small percentage of the of the property has even been looked at. But um, that there are still many, many, many layers of discovery yet for the future to uh, to find out. But why? Why now, Avi? Why is it that just now we're we're starting to understand a little bit more about this northern Galilee, about this? you know, this community of people that followed Yehovah and, and were looking forward to redemption of Zion. You know, I think there's a theme here, right? It's a recognition that, hey, maybe there's more to this story. Maybe there's more to this faith. Maybe there's more to this history. Mm-hmm. And to me, these texts that we look at as, quote, the Hebrew Bible or the Brit Hadashah, these mm-hmm. are rich documents that even though there's only 66 books, mm-hmm. they provide more than a lifetime, you know, of discovery mm-hmm. and exploration mm-hmm. of faith and of history and spirituality and emotional context and knowledge and wisdom. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. amazing. One of the main focuses of this site in the in the narrative, according to the Luke four sixteen through thirty narrative, is that Yeshua was teaching from Isaiah in a synagogue. Now, the current city of Nazareth, overlooking the Jezreel Valley, some thirty something miles to the to the west of the Sea of Galilee, that's not going to work. Well, they don't even have a synagogue there. I've never, ever seen no. one. Have you? I've never seen one there. No, there's no. And, no, and from no. my research, and I've talked with all of the Galilean experts that I mm-hmm. know of, mm-hmm. all the uh, all the archaeologists and the, and the uh, mm-hmm. academics, mm-hmm. and there have been no, although there have been some archaeological finds mm-hmm. of some Jewish presence there, there is nothing that is commonplace of a market or a cardo or a Mm -hmm. synagogue or a meeting place, Mm -hmm. right, at all. There's nothing been found there other than a cave and some graves and some, Mm -hmm. you know, little apartments or these kind of things. Mm -hmm. And when you go through Israel and you've shown, uh, personally, you've shown me 20, 30, 40, 50 places Mm -hmm. in Israel, and Mm -hmm. I've gone there on my own and Mm -hmm. seen another 20, 30, 40, Mm -hmm. these first century sites are all over the place Mm -hmm. in Israel. There are synagogues and there are mikvahot. They're everywhere. And so when you go to Nazareth, you want to see that, right? You want to say, hey, you know, where are the common places? Where's the cardo? Where's the the synagogue? Where's the mikvah? Where's the mikvah? Where's anything that shows a Mm -hmm. corporate presence of followers of Yehovah? And you don't see it there. But the synagogue at Gamala, it, it, it is so rich with images, with with everything that a community would have. I mean, it has yes. the it has the mikvah right outside right. of the entrance, going into it. Yep. The olive presses are right there, mm-hmm. and the uh, you know the the mills. It's an amazing place, and you want to find those things. I want to find them in Nazareth in the traditional site. I would love to see them there. And I think what's really interesting, Joe, is that uh, the Gamala 
uh, synagogue is one of eight synagogues that have been discovered in all the land of Israel dating prior to the first century and leading into the first century. Most of the other synagogues that are found in all of Israel are uh, late second, third, fourth century synagogues. That's right. But there are eight of them that are dated specifically to first century and prior, and the Gamla Synagogue is one of them. That's right. And so it's especially a, a, a very unique place. And when you look at the ones that they have found, like Modi'im or at uh, Masada mm-hmm. or, um, you know, some of the other uh, other sites, they're not the typical sites <laughs> mm-hmm. where you would think. But there was mm-hmm. clearly first century worship, you know, or, you know, a study, mm-hmm. Sabbath mm-hmm. teaching in mm-hmm. these synagogues. We know there were in Bethsaida and Kafarnahum. And in Chorazim, uh, because the synagogues that were built on top, right, of the ones that were there in the first century, we see third and fourth century, you know, buildings uh, instead of the first century that would be underneath those. So that that should tell us something that, listen, we have... uh, we have synagogues dating back to that, and here is a synagogue on a mountain side, tucked deep into a canyon, a city that could be classified as a city set on a hill, uh, with all of its lights from the oil lamps, with all of the oil presses, with the people that were there. I mean, it's it's just it everything just fits and with the people that were the zealots or the kanaim they were a rough and tumble crowd and they were saying we're not going to put up with any political occupation going on in our in our country in our land if he grew up there which i believe perhaps he did uh then you know it would be like yeshua was kind of an odd man out it would be like him yeah. saying wait a minute we're not going to be fighting against rome here let's make aliyah upward to the kingdom of heaven and get our hearts and minds right first upstairs, then we can deal with the downstairs stuff. Know what I mean? Yep. They found his words to be uh, like, dude, what are you talking about? And he connects those words to those words of John the Baptist, which connect those words back to um, Isaiah. Right. So these things are all connecting right there as a testament to the son of Joseph. Mm. Right. This Ben Yosef, Mm. who we always think of a carpenter's son, Mm. but the context isn't the carpenter's son. Mm. It wasn't the carpenter's son when the townspeople saw him at Gamla. And he was reading from the 61st chapter of the book of Isaiah. Mm. It wasn't the carpenter's son when Nathaniel was referring to the carpenter's son, Joseph. Hmm. Yeshua's earthly father, the carpenter, is not material Hmm. to this conversation. So he was a deeply spiritual guy, the word made flesh, but deeply spiritual, and that probably went against their grain to some degree, wouldn't you think? I would think so. I would think so. And they too also connected with each other, with their brothers and their and their family members. So there was a lot of this, uh, you know, are you going to leave your brothers, you know, and follow me, right? Will you leave your family and follow me? So there were some tensions with this, what this calling 
was going to be, and he's going to be fishers of men, not fishers of fish, right? <laughs> so this level above what we're talking about, coming to the other side, as Abraham did, following not in the footsteps of his family, hmm. but crossing over, hmm. being a Hebrew, looking for that kingdom that's builder and maker is God. I think Yeshua had the message of Abraham, the message of Moses, the message of Zion in his heart. I think the evidence does shout more loudly than the theory. We will continue with Joe Bartling, a forensic technologist and certified fraud examiner and licensed private investigator to discuss Gamla, an ancient Galilean city in Israel of the first century, just a few miles east of the Sea of Galilee. We'll come back after the break. You are listening to Avi Ben Mordechai and the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 20-23. Welcome back to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Once again, here's your host, Avi Ben Mordechai. And we are talking with Joe Bartling. And uh, Joe Bartling is a forensic technologist, a certified fraud examiner. Uh, essentially, you don't want to get him involved with any accounting fraud because he'll find where someone might be cooking the books, right? That's right. And uh, he is also a licensed private investigator. Uh, Joe has visited Israel on many trips, uh, collecting and studying historical geographical and archaeological evidence about Gamala and the northern Galilee area and connecting it uh, to the strong possibility that Gamala is, in fact, Nazareth or Yeshua's hometown and the place where he and his family lived. He grew up there. That's the town of Gamla or Nazareth which would be in the Galilee and not some 30, 35 miles away to the west uh, in the hills overlooking the Jezreel Valley. I think the evidence does shout more loudly than the theory. Josephus said that, that Gamla was filled with refugees. My uh, research has pointed to Gamla as one of the six cities of refuge hmm. that were set up in the Hebrew Bible. And this was a part of the, mm. basically the, mm. the idea of murder in the second degree. If you were cause of someone to be dead by, by an accident or by, so you were in a fight and somebody got killed uh, by an accident, mm. let's say second degree or manslaughter, mm. that under the Torah, you're still responsible for that family, for that life. Mm -hmm. um, but you needed to go to a place of refuge mm -hmm. so that there was a provision for what we would call a sanctuary city mm -hmm. now, where you would go to a place. So Moses said that there were going to be six cities of refuge that would be set up, three on the west side of the Jordan River and three on the east side of the Jordan River. And when the children of Israel came into uh, the land, they set one of them up in what's called, or they call it in the Bible, in the in the Hebrew Bible, it's called Golan, mm -hmm. and it's in the plains of Bashan. Mm -hmm. So this 
place, Gamla, was and is in the plain of Bashan, mm -hmm. as we've said before, mm -hmm. right, with mm -hmm. this uh, mm -hmm. Og in this territory of Syria. Hmm. So part of this has to do with what the spiritual calling and this destiny of what this place called Gamla, called Netzeret, mm -hmm. called Golan, called Aram, called Syria, all mm -hmm. these, it's called Gesher. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. a lot of words that are mm -hmm. used in, in the same context as this place, which was this capital, capital city of this region. And I just think it's so rich and, uh, you know, there will be much to be discovered. But as you said, there's a higher calling. Uh, let me give you some thoughts here. I hadn't, I don't know if you had ever thought about this, Joe, but I had asked the question a number of years ago, uh, why did the men, the, the religious men of that city, uh, why did they seek to throw him down over the brow of the hill or the cliff there on which the city was built? Have you ever thought about why they wanted to do that? Well, the context of what he says there mm -hmm. is that he's not welcome in his own hometown mm -hmm. or his own townspeople mm -hmm. would not accept that message. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they're hearing and they've established the way it's going to be, right? The town says it's going to be X, Y, and Z. And this guy comes and he says it's going to be one, two, and three. Mm -hmm. And so it's not as they've expected. And also with the feeding of the widow and the uh, healing the one leper. Okay, L let me bring you over to Luke 10, 18. I'd like you to read that okay. for us. Okay, and so how far down? J just read verse 18. Okay, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Okay, so he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, heaven, uh, in my understanding, is a metaphor or a symbol for the Garden of Eden, Gan Eden and Zion, or Mount Zion in the Garden of Eden, according to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Come, let us uh, you know, go up to the mountain of the house of Yehovah, Ki Mitzion Tetze Torah, uh, out of Zion uh, will go the law. So Yeshua is saying, I saw Satan fall from the Garden of Eden, like lightning, right? So they know the serpent, the dark forces behind this, that is stirring up the men of the synagogue and saying, uh, if I could put it colloquially, payback time. You got me thrown out of here. I'm going to get you thrown out of here. So what I see is I got thrown out of this place. I'm going to make sure that they throw you out of this place, which is representing the kingdom of heaven kind of idea, the self-sufficiency. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So I'm wondering if that was what that was all about. It could be too. And you know, just right before in this uh, chapter we're reading here, uh, where he talks about the woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, but it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment. And mm. you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. Mm. This is contextually, again, right here in this area, right, where we're talking about this Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum area. So being able to point up to the mountain. Yeah, so you have this man, 
You have Yeshua uh, being looked at as a Jewish renegade. Oh, yeah, you grew up here, here in yeah. Nazareth, yeah. quote unquote. You grew up here in Gamala, but you're not gonna you're not gonna change our ways and turn us around from uh, our focus. Uh, we're going to politically save this nation through the means that we have available to us. Don't tell us how it's going to be done. We'll tell you how it's going to be done. Yep. So they take him from the synagogue filled with wrath and they say, you're out of here. Yep. And we're going to throw you down off the mountain right. in the same way that you had the Satan thrown out of the temple or the city of God in the Garden of Eden. Same way, just throwing them out. Yep. That, that's kind of yep. how I'm seeing it. Now, one more thing here. Have you ever asked yourself the question, that last statement of uh, the narrative in Luke 4, verse 30, then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. How did he do that? I think that if Yeshua had been brought up on that mountain, he knew every path. He would have been able to scamper up and down that mountain, and he knew the way out. Um, if you grew up there, you know how kids are, and 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 of course he would have been able to go. It's a couple hours down to the down to the sea, mm -hmm. right? You know, certainly he's in his peak physical condition you know, mm -hmm. at, at 30 years old. Yep. 30, you know, he's yeah. 30. He's going to be able to 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 head right on down there, and mm -hmm. maybe there's a bunch of old folks in there that mm -hmm. wanted to do it the old-fashioned way, but. Um, he was able to go the way he wanted to, right? He was going to leave there and go where he was going to go. Might I suggest that we consider this, uh, this narrative where it says, and passing through the midst of them, he went his way. He got out of that very high-tension situation. I would like to suggest uh, an answer from... Genesis 19.9 and John 10.7. So uh, go read Genesis 19.9 for us, please. And then I'll read John 10.7. Okay, so uh, verse 6. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And this is verse 9. Mm -hmm. And they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. They were pushing hard. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Okay, now, here is John ten seven. Yeshua said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, and all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door, John 10, 9. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I am the door. 
I'm going to suggest that they were trying to break down the door with Yeshua at the top of that mountain at the brow of the hill. In the metaphor, they're trying to break down the door right. to take him out, to kill him. And yep. he got out of that situation through possibly by striking them with a spiritual blindness that they would not have realized what had come upon them. And perhaps I can almost hear part of the dialogue. Mordechai, what are we doing up here? And what are you doing with that big rock in your hand? I don't know. What are we doing here? Ah, it's time for lunch. Something like that. Yeah. In other words, I think maybe he struck them with something that they couldn't see what was going on. And he scampered down the mountain and he just got out of their sight before they had yeah. a chance to realize what had happened. Yeah. Well, it does happen when a crowd is fired up that they start to turn on each other and try to raise their voices louder than the other person making the accusations, right? Mm -hmm. So you get around a room and there might be 10, 20 people and they're all yelling and screaming and they're all trying to be heard, right? And so in that midst of them too, that uh, they get confused and, and lose their focus and he could be, uh, like you said, they might be have been struck with their own stupor. Mm. And he walked right away. Yeah. Now, one more, and then I will, uh, I'll, st I'll stop here. Okay. <laughs> oh, we could go on oh, yeah. forever, Avi. Okay. Yeah, we could. We, we definitely could. Oh, this now, is so good. Now, I want you to read Genesis 3, 23 through 24. Genesis 3, 23 through 24, please. Therefore, the Lord Jehovah send him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim mm -hmm. at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which mm -hmm. turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, so when Adam fell from his position of high glory and honor, it says that Yehovah Yudhei took him and thrust in Hebrew, or it would be if it were in Hebrew, he yep. thrust him out of the kingdom of heaven. He pushed him out. Okay. Yep. Now in Luke 4, 28, for the context, all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, heard him speaking about what he was saying, they were filled with wrath and they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which yep. their city was built. So I'm seeing some kind of a metaphoric connection with the way he was thrust out of the city and the way Adam was thrust out of the city because both Yeshua and Adam were uh, an image of this fallen man. Yeshua was the son of man. He had the Isaiah 53 uh, curse on him, if you will. Yep. And Adam also, because of what he did. So they're both getting thrust out of their abode, their dwelling places. Anyway, look, we, we have addressed a lot. Um, Joe, is there anything else you want to add of just some final thoughts you have at all before we close? I, I think the final thoughts, Avi, are uh, for each of us to uh, search the scriptures and study diligently. You know, each of us is thought to, 
you know, we, we trust sometimes our leaders. I say we trust them too much. We trust our teachers too much. We do have to learn how to diligently search the scriptures and find out through prayer and meditation and study uh, to show ourselves approved. So uh, I've tried to do that with uh, Gamla, and I've learned much from you and from many others. But uh, learning for yourself and having... Uh, uh, you know, having that desire to learn more and be part of uh, and learn that wisdom is uh, is is really key. And uh, if I may quote something from your website at uh, www.gamla.org, G-A-M-L-A dot org. I'll quote your philosophical statement there that I thought was kind of interesting. I think you will uh, remember what you wrote there. Great investigation outcomes are the result of a lot of hard work, uncovering lots and lots of evidence, sometimes sifting through thousands of documents and clues, and developing maps, timelines, scattered diagrams, and relationships between the evidence. In the end... If we have done our work correctly, the preponderance of the evidence supports our theory and the evidence itself shouts out the results. Did you write that? I did. And it does. You believe it? I do. I think the evidence does shout more loudly than the theory. So it'll be interesting to see how this all comes out in the end, but a good result is one where the evidence speaks for itself. And we are talking with Joe Bartling, and uh, Joe Bartling is a forensic technologist, a certified fraud examiner, and uh, he is also a licensed private investigator. Uh, Joe has visited Israel on many trips, uh, collecting and studying historical geographical and archaeological evidence about Gamala and the Northern Galilee area and connecting it uh, to the strong possibility that Gamala is, in fact, Nazareth or Yeshua's hometown and the place where he and his family lived. He grew up there. That's the town of Gamla or Nazareth which would be in the Galilee of the northern end of the Sea of Galilee and not some 30, 35 miles away to the west uh, in the hills overlooking the Jezreel Valley. So I've been talking with Joe Bartling with this theory, and I uh, tend to uh, agree with this theory. I think it fits, and we'll go with it until any other evidence should come up later on to the contrary, okay? Sounds good. Given what we have now heard from Joe Bartling, I would now like to add a few more thoughts here in regards to Gamla as a city of Kanaim or Zealots. And so I thought it appropriate to add a few comments from uh, uh, Suzanne, my wife. So if you would please give a few minutes of attention to uh, some of the things that she was sharing from her heart in regards to, uh, you know, what is happening in our fight between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth and 
that of choosing which kingdom we will identify with. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today in you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. So in short, it all comes down to a war of the worlds between two kingdoms, the Messiah's kingdom of light or the Barabbas kingdom of might. So we have light or might. Calvary or cavalry. Insurrectionist or resurrectionist. So the news headlines of today are rife with separating the masses of people out there into two camps, each with their agent provocateurs stirring up a fight one against another. And uh, this camp will say, make our country great again, or make our country great, because our homeland is our promised land, and we all want peace and prosperity for all. Of course we do. Yeah, and the opposite camp says, No, none of this national pride. We need a new world order, a global system, so that we can redistribute wealth and resources across the globe. We should all manage it with one world government. We should eradicate poverty, conserve our resources, save the planet, while advancing the quality of life for everyone. And for that, we can't have nationalist pride. We need one global government. But both sides, regardless, they are going to have their own champion messiah figure to make everything happen. And uh, both sides are going to also have a set of uh, laws to protect, preserve, and maintain all of the objectives. And so on the surface, it seems that both sides are promoting, you know, this unity, but also self-sacrifice. Both sides also have their uh, their philanthropic forerunners. Uh, but in taking a closer look at the goals of both sides, I think we would say that the fruit is not the fruit of righteousness or justness with its biblical homeland model. And the other side speaks to our whole world is our homeland. I would think that we would say, yeah, yeah, it's okay to be a nationalist, to love one's country, to love one's leaders. Uh, I remember a guy by the name of uh, uh, Yosef Trumpeldor. He was Russian. He was in Israel during the uh, early part of the 1900s. He was called the one-armed guy because he, you know, did a lot of agriculture. He only had one arm. But he was accidentally shot in a skirmish uh, there at Tel Chai in the north of Israel. His last parting words before giving up his spirit was, it is good to die for one's country. Which country that he's talking about? Is that the the homeland that Abraham was waiting for? Is it that country that is to come? We know from historical records that uh, Joseph Trumpeldor believed it was to die for the Zionist cause of the establishing of the natural land of Israel by promise. But But that's not what our calling is. It is for the calling of the homeland above. We all have multiple identities. Wherein lies our primary identity who has authority over all the others? And which one is in our heart and in our mouth? Which one are we dedicating our time and our energy to? Which one do we love with our heart, all our heart, our soul and our veriness? I suppose, especially for me at this point, I was born in South Africa, then got grafted into the Commonwealth of Israel, 
then immigrated to Australia. Now I'm a citizen here as well. So that's a bit of a, a mixed pot of identities. I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm um, a citizen of South Africa, a citizen of the kingdom and a citizen of Australia. So wherein lies my primary identity, which is the one that trumps all the rest and under which authority do all of these fall. And be the nationalist, be, be the one fighting for um, saving the planet, but submit it all unto the true kingdom. Where is your primary identity lie? I think that's the, the challenge I had to face in my life with all my different identities and which one is the head of them all. You've been listening to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, with your host, Avi ben Mordechai. We hope that you have discovered some fresh insights into the ancient biblical Jewish and Hebraic ways of understanding and interpreting the Bible's lessons and narratives. This podcast was brought to you by the Outreach Ministry of Coming Home. Visit our website at www.cominghome.co.il. If you have questions or comments, direct them by email to questions at cominghome.co.il. Again, questions at cominghome.co.il. Yah willing, we'll hope to see you for the next podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. This is Real Israel Talk Radio, and uh, I am Avi ben Mordechai, and... Suzanne, Avi's wife. And we're talking about the War of the Worlds, and uh, we're going to uh, come back on the next podcast, and we'll uh, talk more about these ideas that we're uh, that we've presented here on this podcast today. Some of the thoughts on uh, these two kingdoms, one below and one above. Thank you for joining us and sharing what I'm sure is on many people's hearts if they read the news and watch what's going on. We'll see you next time on Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Real Israel Talk Radio.